Hello, I'm your host Juliana Melrose and you're listening to The Room Show. Today we have a very special guest, Beth Peretta. Beth Peretta is a well-known figure in the world of motorsports with an impressive background in both the automotive and motorsports industries, where she has over 20 years of experience. Beth also holds a Bachelor of Science in Broadcasting and Film from Boston University and a Master's of Business Administration from the University of Vermont. In 2015, Beth launched Grace Autosport, a professional race team of women with the initiative to promote STEM education for girls. Her work with Grace Autosport earned her recognition as one of AutoWeek's magazine's secret people who will change the car world, as well as a game changer by Sports Business Journal. In 2021, Beth launched Pareto Autosports to lead diversity initiatives across professional racing disciplines, starting with the IndyCar series and the Indianapolis 500 race. Beth is also a member of the board of directors of Motorsports Hall of Fame of America, Her diverse experience and impressive accomplishments in the automotive and motorsport industries make her a true trailblazer and respected leader. Today, Beth is here to talk to us about her career in racing, her experiences as a woman in a male-dominated industry, and her vision for the future of motorsports. So buckle up and get ready for an exciting conversation with Beth Peretta on The Vroom Show. So hello, Beth. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Juliana. It's lovely to have you here. So Beth, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about yourself for the listeners that aren't too familiar with you. Well, other than that intro, which it's funny, whenever I, it's like you hear, you hear a bit of your, um, your career read back to you and it sounds like, how did I do all of that? Yeah. It, it seems like the blink of an eye, right? But um, you look back and you realize that um Maybe, maybe it feels like the blink of an eye because I've loved every, every minute of it. And you're doing something that you love. You know, it's what everybody always says. If you do something you love, it, you don't work a day in your life. And it's so true because how lucky it is to work in, uh, in automotive and racing. Because as you said, I had a career for many years in automotive first. And that's because I started reading, literally started reading car magazines when I was five years old. Um, so I grew up in a house where my dad and my dad wasn't really like a gearhead per se or petrol head as you'd say. Um, but they, but my dad, um, had an old car that he had restored and any, and he, um, was always conscious of making sure that it, when he was restoring it, that everything was accurate and correct and period correct. And so I had a um, respect and appreciation for that as a hobby. And also we'd, we would then go to car shows or, you know, where you're showing where there's a bunch of vintage cars, usually out on a lawn of a golf course. Um, as my dad would say, like the best use of a golf course and because he was not a golfer, but the um, being introduced to, cars as a hobby or as part of a lifestyle was something I I've always known so in and it was also like comfortable and happy and fun and so I think eventually even though so here's the here's the million dollar kind of pivot of my life was though as a young girl it didn't occur to me that that was something that you could I could then make a living in or have a career in and it wasn't wasn't something that my my dad or my mom encouraged either because for my dad it was a hobby and it wasn't what he did for a living. My dad wasn't an engineer. My mom was an engineer. So they weren't like, you know, tech-based in their, in their careers or their daily lives. And so I go through my whole school path. And you, you mentioned I have a degree in broadcasting and film. And it was that typical thing, like when you're in, you know, you're, for us, we say high school, where you're in those later years, like, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, figuring out what, what you want to study when you go to university. 
And it's like, well, what do I like? And it happened that I like, I love documentaries. So I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll learn how to make documentaries. And so I actually have a double major of um, broad, broadcasting and film and history, right? And I was like, okay, this makes sense. And I never actually work, I, I get the degree and I don't, I don't, I never use it. And when I'm in college, I figure out that um, I, on the side, I'm working in a, in a retail job at a, actually an Alpine ski shop because I also love skiing. That was my side job, right? Like we all have a job. A lot of us will have a, you know, a job while we're, we're in university. That was mine. And I did it because, okay, I like skiing. You know, my friends work here. It's great. But while I'm there, I figure out, oh, wait, I like business. I'm learning about business. I'm learning about the business of retail. So now I'm like captivated by that. I then eventually go and get a graduate degree in business because I never studied business as an undergrad. And I'm thinking like, all right, now I want a proper business degree to actually learn it. And when I finish business school, I decide, okay, well, I'm not going to stay in the ski business because it's dependent on how much snow falls out of the sky. So what else do I love? Well, I've always loved cars. And it's like the only thing that otherwise had been constant in my life, whether I realized or not, was always constant. So if I'm, you know, I joke that if I was doing something else right now and I worked for any other company, like if I was a corporate executive for Starbucks, I still would be talking about cars, what car I have, going on a track day, go watching racing on TV. And, you know, I'd be that person on in a Monday morning talking to my coworkers about, you know, did you watch you know, the F1 race at spa on the weekend, or did you do this or do, you know, so it's funny that if you sometimes reflect back, it was there the whole time. I just didn't know it. And I took a roundabout path, but the, um, and the reason it winds up being a cautionary tale is so, and, and I think it's a lot better now than it used to be, but women weren't necessarily encouraged to go towards technical things unless it was something that you're super exposed to. It just was nothing that like my teachers suggested. It was nothing that like we had guidance counselors that, that, you know, they could have said like, Hey, you have like, I would have Barbies and, and like matchbox cars. Right. And I'd want to pull things apart. And I, you know, like the way they would say anyone who's an engineer, like pulls things apart. Well, I was doing that too, but they never said, Hey, why don't you study engineering? And why don't you become an engineer? So instead I went a really long path to get there, but now I work among engineers and I work in cars and racing and I probably could have started even 10 years earlier than I did. Amazing. That is quite the story. And <laughs> um, what, so what was your first car? And do you have any memories with that? I love my first car. My first <laughs> car was a 1971 Volkswagen Super Beetle convertible. So it was red with a black top. And I used to have a joke with my dad, I think starting when I was 12 years old, my joke used to always be that my first car had to be red, foreign and convertible, which is like <laughs> just being like cheeky. And I like, yeah. <laughs> and um, I grew up in, in um, like more of a suburban area. So honestly, when everyone turned 16, they got cars mostly because not that it was because of, it, it was because you're kind of far away from like, you know, if you wanted it go to the market, you wanted to have a part-time job. You just, you had to have a car. We didn't really have public transportation. So, you know, everybody basically at the age of 16 got a car, even if it was like a super inexpensive, you know, beater, it was just to get around town. So, um, cause otherwise you're always borrowing your parents' cars and that gets old very quickly for them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, so I was, um, I had a part-time job and I was like on my way to my job one afternoon and I saw this car for sale in like the, someone's driveway. And um, I, I remember I pulled over and I like took down the phone number that was, you know, a little sign in the window of the car. And um, 
and then we got, I got home and I, you know, I mentioned, oh, I saw this car for sale and, uh, you know, it's a Volkswagen Beetle, Volkswagen Bug and it's convertible. And um, my dad's like, okay, well, we'll go take a look at it. What was great about it though, was it was, uh, had a manual transmission and my mother's car was, uh, was an automatic transmission. Um, and I didn't know how to drive a manual because we didn't, we weren't required to, you know, when you get your driver's license here in the U S you're not required at least that. I mean, now every car is automatic transmission, but like back then maybe like 30% of cars were manual, but there was no requirement to learn it. And my father said like, okay, you're going to, we buy this car. Like you have to, you know, obviously you have to learn to drive it. Like, you know, it's, it's different. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And, um, and I remember like a lot of people have a story, like when they first learned how to, how to drive uh, a manual transmission that usually ends in uh, an argument and tears with whoever's teaching you. (laughs) And that happened to me where we're like in a parking lot somewhere. And, um, but my incentive was as you know, a 17 year old still going to like my last year of high school, you did not want to take the bus because that you, you were a complete you know, geek. If you took the bus, you, you have to, you should be yeah. driving. And you were like, so embarrassed. So like the actual fear of embarrassment is what <clears throat> propelled me to learn how to drive a car with three pedals. And, it, and what was cool is even though it was not that expensive, it was a cool car to have because how great is it to be able to have a convertible as your first car? And you're like, you know, super, you look way cooler than you probably really were. Yeah. Super <laughs> cool. I could see, yeah. I can see your vision. I, to be honest, Same. I probably should have asked right? for that as my first car as well. Right? Yeah, absolutely. A red fun. Absolutely. A red, red, it has to be red, foreign and convertible. And the fun, and like, no joke, it, like, again, how funny, like to be cheeky. And then it turned out that it was, so maybe I was manifesting it. So see, that's the, that's the, I think the secret of, in life is just say things out loud and eventually they come true. Yeah. To be honest, <laughs> I might try, I might try that trick myself. See? Um, so when, when you kind of were starting to look into motorsport, you said you were quite a young age growing up, were there any role models for you that you looked up to in that industry you know it's funny because that's a very it's a good question and it's a very obvious question too because it's like oh well what did you see that made you want to do this like that's yeah that's what kind of what we always think of and there there really weren't I mean it right now um you know there aren't many so I own I own a professional racing team right I own an IndyCar team and prior to that, I was this automotive executive who ran the marketing and operations for this the performance division of Fiat Chrysler, which is called SRT, which for a period of about five years was its own brand. It was kind of like a mini brand, similar to like AMG for Mercedes or M for BMW would be the, the a direct analogy of what, what this was meant to be. And... Um, it was funny because I was in that job. So working for Fiat Chrysler, when I say we're running the marketing and operations, what that means is it's running like the business of the brand. So the marketing, of course, is figuring out when you're launching a vehicle, the catalogs, the um, you know digital digital reveal of a car, a physical reveal of a car. You're at the motor show. Um, the you know if you've been to motor shows before, you know when you go there, the whole um, display, like the 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 look and feel of the display. So like if you're running a brand, you literally oversee all of that, the look and feel, the touch of it. Um, what the like no joke, what the models standing next to the car are wearing. Yeah. You know, and because part of that, it should all feed together to like to the um, positioning of the brand and the positioning of the car. So 
um, overseeing all of that with that job also because it's the perf- these were the performance vehicles came the um, the mechanics like that like the um, the operations of the racing teams. So most car companies have racing programs for two reasons: one, to sell cars because it's like advertising, but also because it's like it can be engineering uh, research and there might be things that you develop on the racetrack that then kind of go back into the performance vehicles. And that's a real thing. But uh, when I say overseeing it, that means that I basically held all the budgets. So I'm, I'm running these programs, but in um, I was in the job for about a year when somebody pointed out to me that I was the first woman to ever be running a performance brand of a car company, let alone running the racing programs. And of course, as a woman in business, you just, you're just doing your job. You don't, you don't necessarily know about the first or don't think of those things uh, sometimes until somebody else reminds you. Yeah. Um, in fairness, there, there actually hasn't been one since there will be, there should be more and there will be, but right now still the, the only uh, woman to run, uh, you know, a perform- performance division and, uh, and racing programs globally for a major car company. Um, and what's interesting is I'm lucky. I'm glad that I didn't wait to necessarily see, see women do really well by seeing examples. We do really well by seeing each other. And if I had waited to see a woman in the role, you know, it would have taken how many more years. Right. So hopefully now people are seeing that I did it. Um, But no, there aren't any obvious role models that are specific other than, yes, I, I think that's the thing that women do. And I'm, I'm guilty of it, even as I'm explaining this, that like women kind of ex- wait or expect to see other women instead of seeing men as role models. It's okay for men to be your role model. And yeah. I think that's like a, a good lesson. Like the first woman that went into space, you know, she had to see men as astronauts and be like, oh, okay, I want to do that and not have to wait to see. But women always react well when we see other women. It's almost like we give ourselves permission to do things. Yes. And it's, and the reality is that's ingrained in us as women. It's like biological. So we can't necessarily fight that. So that I, the answer is we need to show more visible examples of women, which is why I created my race team is to be very visible and examples for young women behind us, that this is something for them. Yeah. Amazing. So being a female, obviously, like you said, it is extremely difficult in the first place in the industry and with your accomplishments, I'm sure you had quite a few hurdles to overcome. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about some of the challenges you have faced throughout your career and how did you overcome them? I think the most basic one is people underestimating your ability or your knowledge. And the nice thing, though, is usually when it's about, certainly if it's about your knowledge, you can kind of prove them wrong pretty quickly because they can ask you questions that you can answer. What's funny is over the years, um, and it still happens to this day. It still happens if I'm in, um, you know, like if I'm at a dinner party or I'm at, you know, something where somebody doesn't know what I do or, you know, who I am or what I do. And let's say the conversation turns to racing, right? Because it can, especially now with Drive to Survive and things like that. So you have all these new fans or it t- turns to automotive. People talk about, you know, cars and cars they want to buy. And it's funny that, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm with my, my partner, people will look to him while they're having a conversation and like not even make eye contact with me the yeah. entire time. And, um, I, I mean, I've been at like major automotive events where people just think that I'm kind of the plus one and, 
and it, 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 I mean, it now, I mean, it now it's just funny to me. Um, and I remember even just this past August, we were out, we were at an event out in California. It's a major event annual. It's called Pebble Beach. And I've been to it, oh my God, a thousand times. And we were talking to a gentleman and he, I don't know, he's saying, telling us something and he sort of like paused, stumbling to, to write around, remember the name of a car company, like a vintage car. And, um, and I said it. And he looked at me and then he looked back at my partner. He's like, oh, she knows about cars. And I've had, you know, if I, that's the thing that I've heard my entire life. And um, now that's just like a subtle thing that continually happens where you're just underestimated. And that happens to women all the time. It happens to women probably in most industries. I mean, if you worked in finance, if you worked in insurance, if you worked in real estate, I mean, there's probably most women will have a story like that. Well, we, I'd say that women in across most industries will probably have a story where they felt that, not just they felt that, but they were underestimated. Um, and so we all learn how to manage it, deflect it. Um, what's great though, is I've actually had women, I've, I've had teams that I've managed where men have worked on my team, where I've pointed out to them when it's maybe like an external, like let's say we're meeting with somebody, meeting with a customer or meeting with, you know, a, a supplier or something. And that man that we're, we're uh, meeting with um, assumes that they're the boss and they were, they're actually my subordinate. And so that's fun. Cause like, you'll see them like, you know, again, not making eye contact or not thinking that they don't know the hierarchy. That's also dumb. If you haven't done your research ahead of time and understand. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I will say it's funny to be telling these stories too, in some ways, because I do feel with obviously every passing generation, you're going to see less and less of this and the fact that women are so, and there's been this huge, there's a zeitgeist right now, just about women's empowerment. And, and listen, ultimately too, I realized that it can be a little exhausting for a lot of people to keep hearing things about diversity. And hopefully we, with all of this movement and attention, we won't have to talk about it much anymore because you're seeing this shift of the workforce and the workforce being pretty equalized. Um, We can't take it for granted and we have to kind of keep pushing towards it, but hopefully you know, people that are just coming out of uni now are never going to be making an assumption about you that 20 years ago they made about women in general. So hopefully it gets easier. Yeah, absolutely. And are there any females in the industry now that you're admiring and that if you were kind of just coming out of university, looking into the industry? Who would you look at, right? Yeah, who would you look up to? That's a great question. I don't don't know that, I mean... Uh, I mean, I guess I would go out of, out of the industry in general. I don't know. I mean, I think there's, um, I I finally, I feel like I find myself admiring more men in business right now in the business that I'm in. Other, actually, I should, let's say this, the one, the most, the highest ranking woman who I find uh, absolutely an inspiration, who does a phenomenal job at what she does is the CEO of General Motors is a woman called Mary Barra. And she's worked at General Motors her whole professional career. And she is so, um, she's obviously a brilliant woman, but she's such a great leader um, in that. I love this. So when she started, um, when she started the role, they were revamping things in the, like the employee handbook. And one of the things was a, they needed to update the dress code and she created that. She made it, she changed it so that the dress code was two words or is two words. It is today. The, their dress code at General Motors is two words, dress appropriately. <laughs> like just <laughs> cut through the bullshit yeah. and just like get on with it. 
And I love that. I mean, she's also, she was an engineer, um, you know, came up the ranks through General Motors as an engineer. So she's very like, you know, all business, no nonsense, very capable, but also there is that thing in it. It is a stereotype, but there's some truth to it that women as women make great leaders because we tend to not be so selfish. Um, we're just again, by, by the way that we're, we tend to be raised again, these are broad brush. So, you know, take all that with a grain of salt, but there's something about that nurturing element that caring about your team, caring about results and all that. Not, that's not to say that men don't do that, but you know, there's certain roles that are fantastic for a personality trait of being very um, driven and self-centered. There's other roles that are great for being more broad-minded and, Mary Barra is a fantastic leader at General Motors. And I'd say if, if you're asking me for a woman as a role model, she definitely is it. Otherwise, my role models are tend to be men because that's what, who's, in, who's in my business. Absolutely. So we have gone through your challenges that you face in your career. Would you say that there's any proud achievements that you've had throughout your career that really do stand out to you and that are memorable for you? Uh, our biggest, my biggest achievement is when we qualified for the Indy 500. Um, so I started my race team. I, I resigned from Fiat Chrysler in 2015 to start my own race team. Um, worked on it for a few years, was able to put together a partnership in 2020 with Roger Penske to, uh, to work together on an IndyCar team. And the vision that I had was to have a majority women's team. And the, the child, I say majority, not all women. Sometimes people kind of misquote it and think that our team is all women specifically. We're not all women only because there aren't enough women to make a full team at that level, at that pro level that we're that experienced. And so, and I did actually have to hire some rookies and, and train them up and, and they had to, you know, learn some, some tasks, but the idea of hiring all rookies, that that's an impossibility. You would never do that with any race team. You always have to have like veterans, you know, training new people. So the way for me to, to the way, you know, my, my vision was I want to have a team of majority women because I want to show other women that it's possible. The great thing about racing is, and especially the way, the way that, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm biased because I'm telling you about like what my opinion. And so therefore this is how I've gone about executing this is we're competing in the same stage as men. It's men and women. It's a co-ed sport. Racing can be co-ed and it, and, and it, it always was and could be. So we don't have to have a separate division like, like the National Women's Soccer League or the, the Women's Basketball Association. This is men and women on the same grid going after the same, you know, waiting for the same green flag and the same checkered flag. So, and, and that you say even as a driver, but then again, we all know that there's all these other roles on the team. There's engineers and mechanics and crew people and business people, like my entire commercial staff, you know, race team has to have a business office. Those can all, those roles can all be women. And I knew that they could all be women because, or mostly be women because of my experience. So, all right, I'm, I've done this. I know that there's women in racing. Let's show the world that, um, this is an opportunity that they can, that, that young women can aspire to want to be part of. And the, the, the sneaky secret behind all this is why two things. One is I want to expand the audience. I want more people to watch racing. I want more people to love it um, as much as I do, because I've loved it since I'm five years old and I want everyone else to love it too. Um, Because if more people watch it, then we can keep doing it. We can keep, you know, if we have an audience, we can sell sponsors. We can sell television rights if people are tuning in. Um, why IndyCar? 
IndyCar because two reasons. It's uh, very competitive. It's also very welcoming. But the coolest thing is the Indy 500 is this unique race where you can actually do it as a one-off. Uh, my, my aspiration is that we'll be a full-time team, but you can actually assemble a group of people and just campaign the Indy 500 if you have the right partner. And of course I had Roger Penske as my partner. So that's how you make that magic happen. Um, and it happens that the Indy 500 is the biggest single day sporting event in the world. It's one of the most watched races um, in the calendar year. So it gets a lot of attention. And if I want to, if I wanted to make a big splash with our message where do you have the, the the biggest opportunity to do that indy 500 so the operations of it were allowed me to do it the media um reach made it the right place to do it and that was the the reason why the the, the end goal was indy 500 so my intention was to start like lower on the ladder and climb up to indycar but when i um put my deal together with Roger Penske, he actually had asked me specifically, he's like, why don't, why don't we just do, why don't we work together on an IndyCar team for the Indy 500? So I said, yes. And I will say behind the scenes, I'd known Roger Penske for years. I'd worked with him. I met him initially when I worked for Aston Martin. And then I knew him during my Fiat Chrysler days. So I've had a long, um, you know, working relationship with, with Mr. Penske and the takeaway there, he, and he was one of my, um, my role models, my business role models was, uh, there were two um, automotive role models that I had when I was in graduate school. One was Roger Penske. The other one was Sergio Marchione, who was the, the chairman of Fiat Chrysler. Um, so the fact that I've, and those are my role models while I was in school. So the fact that I've worked for and with both of them directly is crazy. Amazing. Because, right? Yes. right? Yeah. It's like one of those things you read in a textbook and then all of a sudden you're working with them. And, and believe me, that there, you know, was I nervous the first time I met either one of them? Yes. Yes, I was. Um, you know, am I, am I nervous now when I'm around Roger Penske? No. Um, thank goodness. And he's fantastic, but I had this idea to put this team together. And what we, what we did is he, he, uh, lent me, I borrowed some of his seasoned veteran men to, help put this team on the grid. And then when we brought in these women, so some of them were rookies, but some of them were um, from other racing series. So they had racing experience, but they didn't have IndyCar experience. So they needed hmm. to learn, learn the car, learn the rules, uh, you know, all the things. Um, we worked intensely for about four months and these women learned how to, you know, go over the, you know, learned how to do pit stops, go over the wall and change tires, which is a huge feat. If you watch an F1 pit stop, to put it in perspective, those are about a little over two seconds because they're just changing tires in IndyCar. And they have a thousand people descend on the car. I don't know. Like they literally in F1, you have somebody take the tire off and somebody else put the new tire on. Like it's, I think it's three people per tire, per, you know, per tire. In IndyCar, we're only allowed seven people total over the wall and we change tires and we refuel the car. And so for that reason, our pit stop is a little over six seconds. So it's three times as long as an F1 pit stop. So yeah, does it look a little longer, but it's still six seconds. I mean, yeah. if you can change a tire in six seconds, call me. Cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of IndyCar teams would like to hire you. Um, but the achievement that I'm proudest of is it's one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to execute on that idea. And the way that I was able to execute is by leaning on the network that I built for years. And so it's always, I would implore everybody, you know, whatever industry you're in, 
you're only as good as your network. You're only as good as the people you know. So actively, you know, you meet a lot and, and you always hear the old adage, um, you know, it's all who you know. Yeah, it is. But you're, you would be surprised how many people you know. You know your dentist. You know your next door neighbor. You know, you know, a friend of your mom's, a friend of your dad's. What that means is if you're social about things and you talk about things, you might be mentioning when you're at the dentist office that you're trying to start a business and you're looking for an accountant. And they'll be like, oh, my sister's an accountant and she's looking for a job. That's literally what that means. It's all who you know. Yeah. It's, it's very easy to think that that means it's like an ivory tower you know, solution that somebody's going, you know, that, that everybody's very well connected. Yeah, there's that too, but it actually applies to everybody and applies to, to your life too. So the way that I was able to pull off this magic feat of this women's team is by relying on people that could help me, that I could call in, not even call in favors, just call in and say, hey, I need help. Is this something that you'd be interested in helping? And people said yes. And so what's the moment of the achievement for the Indy 500, what's unique about it versus other races is you have to qualify. It's only the top 33 cars that get to make it. And in 2021, there were 35 cars going for the top 33 spots, which means two people go home. So no matter so no matter how hard you worked, how much money you spent, two people don't make the race that particular year. Back in the heyday of Indy 500, like in the 60s and 70s, like literally they'd have like 50 cars turn up or the top 33. So qualifying that weekend was like, yeah, that was a, the hot ticket to buy, right? Because yeah. you're sitting in the stands just seeing who's going to be those top 33. But in our year, and some years, there's only in the past, you know, in the past 10 years, there's been years where only 33 turn up. So yay, everybody makes it. Everybody gets a ribbon. Everybody gets to, you know, make the big race the following week. But in our year, in 2021, um, there were 35 going for 33. So the moment, uh, and we were, um, we, we actually struggled a bit because we didn't know it at the time, but it was because partly because of the setup of the car was not where it should have been. And I will say that my partner team Penske struggled as well. That's why we were struggling because it was a you know, similar setup. So uh, one of the other drivers within our group, our team, uh, Will Power, um, struggled. And my, our driver, Simona de Silvestro, struggled because they had the same setup on the car. And I will say that... Um, so Will Power has won the Indy 500 before. He's won the IndyCar Championship before. He's a very successful, you know, competent yeah. wheel wheelman, yeah. as we say. So the fact that he was struggling, and we were struggling, I'm grateful for, so that people weren't changing the narrative, made like, oh, the ladies are struggling, because that wasn't the case. But these are those moments where, as a you know, as a woman doing this and being the first. So to put it in perspective, the Indy 500 is up, that started in 1911. So in 2021, it was 110 years old. The race is 110 years old and it took 110 years to have a team of women. Um, women weren't even allowed into the garage area at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway until 1971. So what's funny is, and the first woman to be allowed in was a journalist because she's you know trying to cover the story of the, the race. And she finally like, you know, complained or protested or whatever. And eventually she was let in. So she was the first woman and was a journalist. It was 71. Our team was still 50 years later. So it still took 50 more years to get more enough women to make this team. And when we qualified for the race and, and when the clock, you know, went down to zero and that meant that we, we made it in that top 33, that was the historic moment because that was the first time that my team was 70% women. 
And we had four women going over the wall to change, you know, again, remember there's seven that go over the wall for the pit stops. I've got four women. So I, and my key number was four because if it was four, it was the majority. Yeah. Majority of the team was, was, uh, so that was all by design. Um, and we worked towards that and we, we strove for that. And the moment that we qualified was when we made history. That's um, that is absolutely admirable. Yeah. I do see some myself. Yeah. That is crazy. And congratulations and to, the, to get to that point. Thank you. And you've been to the five hundred, right? I mean, no, I have, have been? never been. No, my yeah, brother. I mean, see, my dad has taken my brother, but I have never been, and I have always exactly. asked him, "Please take me." So yes. hopefully, this year will be the year. You'll have to go because it is. It's one of those things. Um, I will say there's different sporting events in the world, and certainly in the United States. You know, we always talk about the Super Bowl, or we have like the Kentucky Derby, like. Even if you're not like a fan of horse racing or even if you're not a fan of American football, if you get that invite, you go just because it's like, it's just an event. It's yeah, like going to the 24 hours of Le Mans. Like it's, you just go because, um, and, and, but once you go, then you're hooked. It's a great event. Yeah. I have been to a few indie races, but never the 500. Yeah. And I was hooked from, but that yeah. was when I was extremely young. So maybe now that I know more about the sport yeah. and know who's racing and, have someone to cheer on so exactly and it's great on television too it's really great on television yeah well I watch it I watch it every year it's good yeah it's good racing and and IndyCar in general like I mean um if you look at what's great about IndyCar versus some other series not to be named but you know one that has a major uh, series that's been on Netflix um is we don't know uh we have so much talent in the field and we have we're a lot more um the competition is a lot more balanced because of the platforms that we like, meaning the car and the engines and the tires allow for a smaller um, window. Like IndyCar is not a, a um, series where if you spend more money, you're going to go faster. We're actually very capped in our spending and have been for years. So for that reason, you don't have this huge disparity of talent like you do in Formula One where the, the front, you know, the front teams are spending almost twice as much as the teams that are always finishing, you know, 19th or 20th. And we have to all, we basically all have to spend the same, like our budgets are the same. I mean, yes, you can spend, you know, maybe 10% more here or there, but it's not this huge disparity where the front teams are spending 500 million and the back teams are spending 200 million. So for that reason, what's wonderful, I, in my opinion, because this is why you want to watch sport is because it's so closely governed, it comes down to the talent of the team and the driver. So how they set up the car and how good is the driver on that particular day? How well did the team figure out what setup was going to work that day? So what that makes for the, how that translates in the racing is you don't know who's going to win. We don't have somebody that wins every single race. We've had three races so far this year. We've had three, three different winners. Um, our championship has gone down to the last race of the season for the past like 14 years, like literally in the last race of the season, there could be two to three different winners for the whole season championship. And I, you know, it comes down to certainly if you're a big fan of F1 and if your driver is always winning, you probably would be like, oh, I don't care. I love it because my driver is always winning. Well, if you're the, a fan of a driver that's on a different team, your car can, can, get, can get old. Well, the thing that's wonderful about the sport, the, the IndyCar racing in general is it's just good racing. And yeah, ultimately, yeah. if you want to have be entertained, it's just and and that's the thing that people need to realize too is that racing and sport is entertainment. Sorry, there's a I'm in New York City, so you're hearing the noises of the city behind me. Um, if you look at any racing driver, and you know this, if you look at their you look at their visa, it, it's an entertainment visa. 
it's, you know, they're considered entertainers because that's, you know, the people that are buying a ticket to sit in the, in the grandstands or the people that are tuning in for TV, um, they want to be entertained. So sport is entertainment, but it's big business. It's amazing how many sports marketing degrees, how many universities now have degrees in sports marketing specifically, because it's big business. It's really Absolutely. big business. It's grown so much and, and it's getting harder and harder. It used to be that the, the money was a little bit more free flowing, you know, back, back in the day, most of, a lot of racing was always sponsored by tobacco companies, cigarette companies, Yeah, lots of money and, uh, and talk about, you know, spending more to go faster. That was that era. But then when um, the government's basically cracked down on not wanting the cigarette advertising, because it was, because they, you know, they drew the, the, the connection of, okay, sm- cigarettes kill people causes cancer we can't be actively um, advertising them anymore that was a huge change to the to the racing business because all of that sponsor money went away and in all these teams are used to spending this much per year so then they had to go out and find all these other companies to come in and sponsor so is it dhl right shipping company or is it you know is it a, a a retail company or all of these different you know logos that you see on the side of the car um and it's made it, it's, it's a huge business to try to find, you know, companies that will give you money so that you can go racing. Yeah. It's a big part of what I do every day. Right. It's one thing to, to set up the car. It's another thing to drive the car. It's another thing to fund and find all the money to make it all. Absolutely. Happen. It's a full-time, well, it is a full-time job for you, obviously, but in terms it of is. even the, the, the drivers that aren't in such high, um, like aren't so high in their careers it is yes. it is a full-time job for them you have to be a businessman as well as a driver if you're trying to True. get sponsorship for yourself Abs- it's, it's absolutely difficult. and the, and the tough thing too is and this is one thing that I don't like the way that the industry switched a bit is um because of that now drivers that aren't necessarily the best on the track but who bring money do get a drive yeah and they do get some of those seats and they take some of those seats that might be better served by somebody who has more talent. And uh, I mean, I'll say it out loud, but, um, and that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, it's, I get it though, because it also still helps to fund, um, you know, what we're doing, but that's why we hope that by increasing viewership, companies want to be part of the sport. We can kind of get away from that and go back to just being based on talent. Absolutely. Be great. Yeah. yeah. For sure. So how do you see the motorsports industry changing over the next five to 10 years? And do you think there'll be any further challenges you'll need to face collectively as an industry? For example, any environmental issues? Obviously, that's been the talk for quite a few years now within the government. Do you think that will affect the motorsport industry? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that we all kind of, the racing industry is always a bit um, connected to, of course, to the automotive industry. So if you want to like, look at the things that are happening in automotive, it's going to transfer to racing. And they've always been, um, in fact, there's always, there's a a joke in racing, like when, when was the first race Um, after the second car was built? Right. So racing and car production and car companies are inextricably linked. And so if you look at the trends in automotive, you see this push for electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles that then transfers to racing. So, of course, we've got things like Formula E and Extreme E that um, uh, showcase these these kinds of power, power plants and race cars. Again, because racing has always used as a bit of an incubator and a development site for cars, for road cars, that, um, that, that's a good use of, um, you know, because these, these competitive environments accelerate your um, development curve. So if you are trying to develop a 
um, you know, a battery pack and your competitor, your competitor is, is better than you and has, you know, a longer life of the battery or, or whatever, you know, you're actively working towards a target all the time. So there's something very valuable about racing that the fan doesn't really see. And that's the stuff that happens behind the scenes. And that's why car companies have justified over the years, in addition to it being, like I said, advertising and selling cars, there's literal um, engineering development that's going on. Now, don't get me started on electric vehicles because I hate them. Um, I, I hate it. I, the reason I hate it is I don't like the narrative that we need to move from co- internal combustion engines completely to electric vehicles. Do I think there's a, a need and a use for electric vehicles? Yes. Should there be also hybrid vehicles, which are a, a mix of the two, having you know electric power plant plants or regenerative regenerative power with internal combustion engines? Yes. Do we need to get rid of internal combustion engines? No. Could we instead spend more time developing better fuels? Because that's the other thing that can happen in racetracks too, is we can work on synthetic or sustainable or renewable fuels. So that way, this entire car park that we have around the world, cars exist. We're not going to take all of these cars that exist with gasoline engines or diesel engines and just crush them and you know, have them be flat little pancakes of metal and just throw them away, like they still exist. So if we can uh, improve fuel, we can keep those cars, we can create electric cars, we can, you know, but this, there's sort of this narrative and, and I think we're guilty of it. It certainly comes from Silicon Valley in the United States and California. It's the Teslas of the world and the, you know, Google and Apple is gonna make a car and all of these crazy notions, thinking that we're just gonna turn on a dime and we're going to, you know, 180 degrees, now everything's going to be electric. I think that's foolish. So how does that change the racing landscape? I mean, you're seeing Formula E. You're going to see more of that. We're going to, next year in IndyCar, we go to hybrid. I think Formula One has always been on the forefront of, case in point, if you look at Formula One, they don't refuel during the course of the race. In order yeah. for them to have done that, they had to find ways for the engines to be, for, first of all, to be able to carry enough fuel and for the, for the engines to be more fuel efficient. That development of making those <clears throat> engines more fuel efficient gave them learnings to make your road car more fuel efficient. All of those things have value. So um, that's where I think it'll go technologically. It kills me though, because I, we're having this narrative of politicians arguing about what they think we need without any understanding of how cars work. So it's, I'd say it's adorable, except the fact that it's just more <laughs> frightening. Yeah. Um, but, but where do I see it in the future? I think our diversity, um, our added diversity is going to continue, which is great because then the paddock of every race series around the world reflects the reality of what we all look like, you know? And so, um, hopefully we'll continue racing for years and years because it would be a, a real shame if it ended because Absolutely. we love it. And Absolutely. I, mean, you know, I don't think that could ever happen. Surely not. Well, because there's way too many people rooting for the sport. Right. We would quietly be racing if the government outlawed it. We yeah. would still be quietly <laughs> racing on a Sunday in somebody's yard, somebody's garden. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So on to our final question, what advice would you give to young women who are interested in pursuing a career in motorsport? Oh, I wish it was that easy. Um, yeah. <laughs> what I would say is, um, and, and this actually, I will give advice that would apply for any industry because it, of course, everybody wants to think like, oh, like, please send a CV here. They're hiring. You always have to be willing to, and I know you're, 
don't resist this advice. You have to be willing to take a job that's below where you think your ability is right now, right? You, everybody has to take an entry-level job. And this idea, sometimes when you come out with a newly minted degree, degree from university, you're like, I want this. And you have to be willing to compromise. Now, the reason I say that is because usually if you're good and you're a hard worker and you have, and you show, you know, you, you, all you want is an opportunity. So you get in the door, you be a hard worker you always climb up the ladder. That's a real thing. Everybody climbs up the ladder. So this idea of um, getting your foot in the door, even if it might be a one level or two levels below where you think you'd like a job, if it is the company of your dreams or the industry of your dreams, don't be afraid to do that because it might be six months of your life or a year of your life, but it'll go by quickly. But you're, but you also don't know what you're going to learn in that role, right? Knowing them, like if you ever wanted to be the leader of a company, how great are you, you're going to be great at it if you've take if you've actually climbed so many you know rungs of that ladder to get all the way up there the fact that you actually then have the perspective of all those different roles within you know and, and all those different jobs all experience is good experience um but so that, and i say that you know obviously of of any industry for motorsport specifically um the nice thing is there is a lot of amateur racing as well like the idea of walking into a professional race team and getting a job yeah, it's hard because there's not a lot of race teams. I mean, this isn't a huge, you know, there's not 5 million people working in F1, you know, or, or an IndyCar. So there's not, there's not that many jobs. So look at things like, you know, let's say your dream is to work for McLaren F1 team. Sure. That's a lot of people's dream, but go work for a sports car team, learn how a race team works, learn all of the bits of it, you know, work in British touring car, work in, uh, and a, a pro-am series, an amateur series, any of it is valuable and any of it transfers and translates. Because if you were then to walk into McLaren and say, I have done this for three years or five years or eight years, absolutely has more value than somebody coming in with a brand new, like I have a mechanical engineering degree and I just want to walk right in. It's not going to happen that way. And in yeah. fairness, even if it did, you wouldn't necessarily <clears throat> be the best at your job. You'd be better off if you came in with some real world experience because perspective always um, gaining perspective is valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with that. So yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't feel like much. taking one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so just don't feel bad. Don't, don't ever feel like you'd be wasting time working for a smaller company or a smaller team. Sometimes like I, my experience, I worked for Aston Martin and then I worked for Fiat Chrysler. Aston Martin. Yep. Big brand name, tiny company. So when I was in the United States working for Aston Martin, I was one of 17 employees. What's great about that is you wear so many hats. You learn a lot, a lot of things. But then I could take that experience and go to a much bigger company and come in at a much higher level. So don't be afraid to, um, don't be afraid to work for big companies. Don't be afraid to work for small companies. But the key is the secret to success is work hard and build your network. That's it. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. Thank so thank, thank you. you very much for your time. Um, I get that you're extremely, extremely busy at the moment since it's the start of the season. Um, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, and I really do hope that everything, all of your goals, all of your achievements just happen. Um, and I hope that more successes come your way. And I hope we'll see you at Indianapolis. I hope years. so too. I truly <laughs> hope so too. I will. You'll see me at some point. Excellent. All right. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.